Welcome to Sweat to Technique, a podcast all about how you get better faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, a co-host and former school principal and superintendent of Republic Schools in Nashville and Mississippi. And, you know, this podcast, the whole genesis of it was we're a bunch of former educators, some current educators who want to apply the lessons from the classroom to life generally. And I recently wrote this post in our newsletter in Brolio about how over the past five years, each year... I've been picking a new skill and doing a deep dive in that skill or a hobby. And I talked about surfing and screenwriting, novel writing, powerlifting and all that. And we'll link to that in the show notes. But what's amazing is like, there are a few books out there that I've used as kind of my guide to how to learn things faster. And one of them is this book called Ultra Learning by our guest today, Scott Young. And he's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, podcast host, computer programmer, as we'll talk about. And since 2006, he's been publishing essays on his website all about how we think better, how we learn better. And his book, in many ways, is an outgrowth of that. It is an incredible guide about how to get better at anything, especially for those of you who are lifelong learners and want to start something, quote unquote, too late in life. And as we'll learn, it's almost never too late. So Scott, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, Scott, loved your book. Thank you. And I want to start just by talking about what is an ultra learner? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So ultra learning is a title. It gets some divisive reactions sometimes. But the way I define in the book is just people who take on, kind of like you described with your projects, a project to get better at something that's sort of self-directed, that's also, you know, intense or aggressive or like focused on efficiency. So in that sense, I'm kind of ruling out the, you know, the med student who's in a medical school, which is obviously a lot of learning, but it's a very much you follow what the teacher tells you to do. Yep. And I'm also ruling out, you know, the person who just sort of putters around like, ah, I'm going to just do this, but it's mostly for fun. I'm not really focused on improving. And in particular, I had some like, concrete examples of people who really inspired me who did these sort of impressive things where it was sort of like, wow, my first real introduction to this kind of world was Benny Lewis, who, you know, he's learned maybe a dozen languages by now. And he would go to these new countries and he'd be on a three month visa and it'd be like, let's see if I could be fluent in Polish or Romanian or something like that. Unbelievable. And so this was a real inspiration for me. And I've, I've done a few projects of my own and I wanted to kind of share some of these weird online personalities as well as some of the science and research that kind of grounds, well, how are they doing it? How are they actually learning and getting better at things more quickly? Well, before we get to you, let's talk about Benny Lewis. Yeah. How many languages has he learned now in these sort of three three month bursts? Ah, I don't know. I think, you know, the thing is, is I've met quite a few of these kind of like hyper polyglots now and uh, how many languages you speak, I actually hate that question Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. because you don't realize this is something this is like, you know, hyper polygot problems, but just when you learn multiple languages, they start to interfere with each other. And so unless you're really dedicated, actually maintaining ones you've learned in the past is a, is not a trivial task. So, I mean, Benny Lewis, I think he probably, from my interactions with him, I feel like he probably speaks a good, like eight to 10 solidly. And then he probably has this sort of like fringe zone of like, you know, like I know he's learned American Sign Language. I know he's learned like Polish, but I don't know whether he's still practicing them. So there's probably some kind of fringe zone, but definitely like his romance languages are all really good. The ones that I speak, he speaks better than me. And I know he can speak a number of languages that he's practiced over more than three months, over over longer periods of time. But, But I mean, the real 
like thing that kind of got me excited about him and what got him excitement online was just him doing this kind of like vagabonding. I'm just going to show up somewhere and try to speak. And then he's posting some video after him three months, having like a conversation with someone, which I mean, if you've spent time in a Spanish classroom and you know, you can barely say hola at the end, it's something that is something that really like appeals to a lot of people, certainly to me when I was struggling with learning languages earlier. And you begin the book not talking about your language experience, but actually taking this MIT or kind of reconstructing an MIT course in a sense. Can you describe that process? Yeah. So this was an experience I had shortly after graduating from university. I'd studied business, but I'd kind of, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling like maybe I should have studied something else, but I don't want to go back to school. All the time. So I wanted to learn computer science. I kind of felt like I wanted to do that, but I didn't want to go back to school. I didn't want to pay tuition, didn't want to like go back into a dorm room, this kind of thing. And MIT, and this is still true, but it was true you know, over 10 years ago when I actually did this project, uploads a lot of their material online for free. And so the idea kind of struck me like, has anyone ever tried to get an MIT education without going to MIT. So just like, what do you learn in an MIT computer science curriculum? Here are the classes, here are the final exams, here are the programming projects. Could you do that? And so this was a project I called the MIT challenge. A little bit of my kind of gimmick there is that I wanted to try to do it instead of in four years, I wanted to do it in one year. And I would say it was pretty successful. I was able to learn, I would say broadly what an MIT student learns in their classes. I mean, I'm sure hobnobbing with the tech elite and professors that are doing advanced research is something that, yeah, that's definitely an advantage of going to MIT. And it was a really interesting experience, but I think even more than that, it kind of turned me on to this sort of weird world of like alternative education and other bizarre online personalities. Like, you know, I mentioned Benny Lewis was uh, someone who had a lot of inspiration for me, but, you know, I also mentioned people like Eric Barone who like made his own video game and Roger Craig and some of these other people that, you know, just you don't encounter in regular life, but they are very inspiring people in terms of how dedicated they are to pursuing these kinds of projects. Right. And as part of your process, you basically were testing yourself, right? It's something we'll talk about when we talk about breaking down the different processes of ultra learning. But I just want to give people a sense of the amount of intentionality of this. This isn't just going on a Coursera course and finishing getting yeah. a certificate at the end of it. You you really tried to give yourself the full experience here. Well, I tried my best to benchmark off of the curriculum. So what I would do is I went online and I looked at like, these are all the courses you have to take. Now, I did have to make a few substitutions. So there's a few like lab-based classes where like, I don't have access to the robot. So I, I switched it out for, let's say, a theory class that I could actually like test myself on. And ironically, it's the humanities that are actually really hard. So some of those I switched for economics because you can actually do an exam for them where it's like, yeah, you got to pay somebody to read your paper. Yeah. Now they have chat GTP. So maybe it would have been possible to, to get an essay graded. But yeah. back in the day, that would have <laughs> been impossible. So the idea was, is that they post the final exams and they have a solution and a solution key. And I mean, I mean, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Like how, how do you award part marks and like, you right. know, how much, so I don't want to like hand wave over that, but it's a math class. So I mean, you either got the answer right or you didn't, or you used the right approach or you didn't. And so it's, it is relatively amenable to self-grading. And so the idea there was, well, take the class and then you try to pass the final exam that they did. And I think there, you know, we could get into the details. I know as an educator assessment is sort of often a fraught thing, but I feel like that's a good benchmark for whether or not you learn the material. And especially I think at a class like MIT, where 
you know, a lot of the final exams, they have kind of challenging conceptual questions. This is not a class where, you know, memorize how to do this and then they give you that exact question on the exam and you can just crib off of it. You do really have to understand the concepts to, to be able to get a, a passing grade in, in a lot of these classes. And so that was the idea is, you know, could you go through it that way? And I mean, there is omission. So I, I don't want to say it was exactly the same as a an MIT student would do, but I think circa 2011, when I was approaching it, just the idea that you could get something that is pretty close to an MIT education without ever setting foot on campus or ever asking for permission or, you know, paying anyone any tuition, right. I think is a, was a novel prospect. And now there's a lot more online schools. There's a lot more variations on this kind of theme that have come up, but I think at the time it was definitely something that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. And I think the key is because there are more resources than ever. I think one key is to finish because I think like a lot of this data around is that so many people start these online courses, but they don't finish. So the intentionality really matters. And you take people to a whole process here. Yeah. And before we even go into those sort of elements of that process, what are some of the just the distinguishing characteristics now that you've met a bunch of these ultra learners? Like what makes the person, not the process, but like what kind of people seem to innately get this, right? Like your your hope is to expand the amount of people in writing this book, but like the kind of people who are self-driven enough to discover this on their own, what makes them different? Well, the funny thing is, is that as I've talked to more people and worked with more people on it, I think actually most people, there would be some project for them that they could do an ultra learning project for. Now, obviously you have to be really motivated to learn what you want to learn. You were talking about a completion. Well, like a lot of that is just, oh girl, I'll check out this course. Oh, it's actually kind of hard and boring yeah. and then I don't want to take it. For so sure. I, I'm not here to like solve that motivation problem for you. I think rather I'd like to articulate is that there is probably a project in you. There's probably something that you would be really motivated to do and you would be really motivated to work hard. Now it's not going to be everything, but maybe it's something. And so like I've met people who, you know, they get really, really interested in like hip hop dancing or they get really, really interested in martial arts. And like, that's the thing for them that they would want to really work on. And so I think finding that is something that most of us probably have that. Now, the way I've defined ultra learning is I've defined it not some people kind of take it as like ultra learning is like learning really fast, but that's not really how I defined it in the book. I define it as like taking on this kind of project that's self-directed that you would be really passionate about to work really hard at. And I think efficiency is a part of that, but I mean, anyone could be an ultra learner by that definition. That's just something that you just have to find that project that you're interested in. The speed at which you're going to learn the, you know, efficiency, whether you do something in one tenth the time, like I'm, I'm not making any guarantees about that. That's something that's going to depend a lot on the details. But I think that's something that anyone could do. Now, the people who I encountered, I feel like it was a mixture of, they had kind of developed again, an unusually obsessive interest about something in particular. And then I think for some of them, they were kind of lucky enough that they had the right set of influences that set them on this path. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of what I wanted to share, you know, like, I don't think I would have approached certainly not the language project I'd done if I hadn't never met Benny Lewis. So it's, it is really this kind of like, if you haven't found the this is a thing that you can do. And this is some other people have done something similar to model off of. I mean, most people just, it was just, it's a kind of a weird thing. Why would you do it? Right? Yeah. I alluded to it in my introduction, this fact that I've been past five years, I've been picking one hobby a year and learning it. And you're so right about the right set of influences, right? So year three for me was learning to surf, something I've always wanted to do in my life. I didn't grow up next to surfable beaches, but during the pandemic, I was able to go down to Costa Rica for six straight months because of the remote 
work. And there were a whole bunch of things I write about that had to happen in order for that to happen, meeting the right people, et cetera. And then at the end of the first year, one thing I was thinking about doing was tennis. And I happened to be surfing at the very end of the year next to somebody who I didn't know, but we just struck up a conversation. Mm -hmm. And he turned out to be the Davis Cup tennis coach for Costa Rica. So then that became the next year's focus. And so there is a bit of serendipity here, but there's something you mentioned that makes me smile, which is, you know, you talk about how people really like to get in the minutiae. I think in your book, you talked about like somebody who's an ultra learner, often they'll want to fiercely debate esoteric concepts and nothing makes me happier than meeting these people. <laughs> I, I have been this person for sure on certain things. Like my friends like make fun of me about how like uh, whatever it is I'm doing, it's all I want to talk about. But I love meeting people who like, they are so offended that you don't want to get into the details with them. And that's how <laughs> they, into it they are. So I love that. So you have these nine universal principles and I, I think it doesn't make sense to go through all of them at once, but I want to pick a few of them. The first one is meta learning. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about this because I think I think this is the one that people are more likely to skip right. out of enthusiasm even. Like they just might want to just get right to it, which is honestly one of your other principles. <laughs> it was a weird idea to start researching because, you know, a lot of what I did when I started this book is the principles were kind of derived from more anecdotal, my experience. Occasionally I have one that was just like, I, I just put that in because I really like the science. Retrieval was a real strong one there. But the meta learning one was just kind of like, well, this is obviously the first thing that you have to do. So let's look at like research on it. And it was really difficult to find research because uh, there's a lot of related concepts. So like metacognition is one that gets talked about a lot in the research. This is kind of like thinking about your own thinking processes. But that wasn't really what I had in mind. It was more kind of Do you understand how knowledge and skill works in this domain so that you would have some reasonable guidelines of like how you would set up learning it? And it's funny because you almost never encounter that. Like very rarely do you start a class where like the first day of the class is like, this is how to study in this class. Like they never, they just assume that you know how to do that, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And can I give an example of that? Like, so a good example of that was I played around at the beginning of this year with making learning Spanish my skill for this year. I decided not to, but I started off in part, I think because of your book, I started off reading books about how to learn any language. They weren't books about Spanish and all that. And that's actually where I probably spent most time. But you also have this recommendation. I think you say, take a sheet of paper. You basically talk about separating the domain into concepts, facts, and procedures, and then kind of underlining the areas that are the most challenging to you. Talk more about that. That's a very rough breakdown. So like I'm trying to pick something that, again, applies across almost any skill. It's going to be concepts, facts and procedures. But obviously you want to be more granular than that. Like, you know, if we're talking about a language, there's pronunciation, grammar, vocabulary, like there's much more specific categories. But the concepts, facts and procedures is basically concepts are things that need to be understood. Facts are things that need to be remembered. And procedures are things that you need to do, that you need to perform. And I think without getting too technical here, I think there's some argument to be made that these rely on somewhat different brain systems. There's an argument that maybe the facts and concepts are not quite so, you know, some people lump that into declarative, but I think it's important to at least make that first level of separation because, you know, people will often say to me like, what's the right way to learn? And then they pick some topic. So I'll give an example, like uh, someone just recently wants to do a project learning military history. And I think part of the difficulty of even approaching something like that is that it's not clear what it means to be good at that. Right. And if you talk to historians, a lot 
of what they'll talk about is a kind of procedural skill of being able to identify sources and being able to like think critically and weave together conflicting accounts and evaluate evidence. But what a lot of everyday people think when they think about history, it means knowing lots of facts about history. Or then there's also like the conceptual aspect of like, could you, you know, get some broad gestalt of what it means to, you know, have certain types of conflicts that you could export and apply everywhere that would be kind of abstract. And so I think some of the difficulty of this is that if you don't really have a sense of what it is that you're trying to do when you're learning, like what is the change that you're trying to make in your brain that at the end of it, you'll be able to do X, you'll know X, you'll understand X. If you don't have that, it's kind of a non-starter. I mean, the, the most you can do is just say, oh, okay, I'm going to read this book or I'm going to take this class, which is not a bad way of going about it at the beginning. But the meta-learning approach is to try to bootstrap that a little bit, to try to say, well, what is the mental change that I need to make to actually be good at this? And then you can start itemizing it. So you, like you were saying about languages are a great example because you can actually reuse this. You can learn multiple languages and the meta-learning structure is quite similar. But you can say things like, okay, well, I'm going to need to know a lot of vocabulary. That's like a memorization thing. I'm going to need to practice a lot of grammar. That's a procedural thing. Maybe there's a few concepts. There's not usually not tons of abstract concepts, but occasionally there are in, in languages that you need to learn. And so even just having that preliminary breakdown, you're already starting to suggest techniques because when you're thinking of memorization, okay, we're leaning towards flashcards. Proceduralization, okay, we're doing some practice problems with feedback. You know, like you start, you know, you start Start digesting, you start breaking it down. And so I think that's a very helpful first step when you're learning is to just, what are we even dealing with when we're trying to get good at a particular skill? And you recommend, this is a rough recommendation, but yeah. 10% of the total amount of time somebody is going to spend learning something that they devote to meta-learning. So a good example would be if I thought it was going to take me a year to get to whatever I wanted to be in Spanish, I'd probably want to spend a month of the year, if not a month and a half, on learning about learning. Yeah. Well, I would say learning about the thing that you're trying to learn. So it's it's usually more specific than that. Like you could probably read my book and a handful of other books that talk about learning at a, a more universal level, but a lot of the real valuable meta-learning is quite domain-specific. So it's kind of like, if I want to learn Mandarin, I need to learn stuff about Mandarin. So it's not mm -hmm. like... The, the distinction I make there is, for instance, like uh, learning a particular character would be learning. And then the meta learning would be like, this is how characters are organized in general. This is how many there are. This is how many a fluent speaker knows to speak. This is how tones work. Like it doesn't really help you in all, but it gives you this kind of scaffolding that you would be like, okay, this is the slots that need to be filled in order to gain proficiency at this. So I do recommend front loading quite a bit. However, I think one thing that I've sort of noticed since I wrote that book is that a lot of the projects I undertook, they were kind of fully formed conceptions when I announced them. And so I, I did try to front load as much of the meta learning as possible because you don't want to like get into a project that you've publicly announced that is kind of misconceived. Like you've just not understood how the skill works. And so you're, you're already heading down a dead end. However, I think in practice, you often alternate between them. So you you do a little bit and then you learn a little bit about how it works and you realize, no, 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 this isn't the right approach. And then you try a different approach. And so it doesn't have to be all, you know, 10% in advance. But I think that idea that about 10% of the time is spent on meta-learning is surprising to people, but I, I find it really valuable because if you're going to memorize 10,000 flashcards, that takes a long time. So you want to make really sure that those are the right flashcards to memorize, you know? Yeah, or that even using flashcards is the right or, or that even flashcards are a good thing to do, right? Yeah. Right. And so your second step is focus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is a an area that is hot topic right now, given all the different <laughs> yeah. ways that people can distract themselves. Mm -hmm. And you start with this woman named Mary Somerville. Talk a little bit about her and what inspired you with her story. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes you encounter people that just 
something about their story really resonates with you. And uh, reading Mary Somerville's biography, I mean, like this was a woman who was an ultra learner in the 1700s. She was like, she was just this Scottish housewife who was like, I'm going to learn this. And then like, I'm going to translate Laplace's celestial mechanics into English. And very smart, obviously, but also someone who, you know, this is working outside the formal systems. Like she's not, you know, the university provost. She's just, you know, a woman who's often being denied access to education, often being denied access to these institutions and still reaching, I think she was, uh, along with Caroline Herschel, elected Academy of Sciences. I'm, I'm missing maybe the exact reference there, but she was, you know, uh, honored for her contributions there. And the other thing that also caught me is that she had like four or five kids. I'm, I'm also, again, fuzzy on the details here. I think it was four or five. And I mean, to be able to do all this and have like, I, I have two kids right now. And it believe me, if you have five kids and you're able to like reach this high level of intellectual prominence, you know, it just, it takes enormous dedication. And so I just love these little like, things like, you know, she was going to learn botany. And so she's like, well, like while I'm nursing my infant for an hour a day, I'm going to just like study this. And I just thought that was so great because this is someone who clearly is dealing with the practical necessities of like finding time, inserting it into her schedule, but is also like one of these people that, you know, we were talking about that she's just genuinely passionate about it. Like, how do I make it work? How do I, how do I find time for learning? It's not a chore for her. It's just, it's what her life is. It's honestly, it reminds me, the most common thing I hear when I write things, like the thing I wrote this week, about one skill a year, the most common critique I get mm -hmm. is because I don't have kids. So yeah. it's like people will be like, well, that's only possible because you don't have kids. Now they're certainly right that it is easier to do yeah. without kids, but you have kids yeah. now. You might not have had them when you wrote this book. I'm not sure. No, I didn't. But tell me about like how you think about the time demands of children and the sort of process of ultra learning. Well, if you are a parent and you're thinking, I'm going to be just like, oh, it's, it, it is hard. Like the kids take a lot of time and they're, it's a very extensive time commitment. You know, it's not something you can easily be like, okay, you, you know, now I'm going to do three hours for myself. Like they're interrupting you. They're doing this kind of thing. So I do think that, you know, compared to like, there's projects like that MIT challenge project that I did, I would not be able to do it the way that I did it then. Certainly not. But I mean, I feel like, again, it's a sort of uh, Jurassic Park, like life finds a way. Like if you're really interested in something, you can find a way to do it. Now, maybe you don't have all the options. You have more constraints, but there's still lots of way to do it. It's that having that interest, having that something that you could be really enthusiastic and obsessed about even. And I think also some of the things that I've found is that you have to like find the right ways to capture those moments. So, I mean, we, we could talk about this in, as more as well, but like there's certain chunks of learning that you really need like uninterrupted for like an hour or two, but then there's other aspects of learning that maybe you can capture 10 minute chunks in the day. And maybe there's some that, you know, you could even do with less than that. So, you know, my classic example is like flashcards because they don't need a lot of context. That's something that you can do on your phone when you have like 30 seconds. So if you're learning a language, for instance, flashcards are a really good thing to insert in those chunks. Now, a conversation, you probably need at least 15 minutes or half an hour. If you're going to do like practice problems for like a difficult math course, probably need half an hour to an hour. That's difficult to do on five minutes. But if you're watching, you know, a lecture or something online, you can maybe insert that while you're having lunch or this kind of thing. So I think it's about working around that, but the base motivation kind of has to be there. So I feel like the best thing you can do to maximize your focus is to pick something for learning that you're genuinely really interested in. And so I think that's the sort of starting point for a lot of these projects is, you know, I'm obsessed with this. And then it's sort of like, okay, I'll find time 
squeeze it in here and there as opposed to, oh, this is a chore. Well, then it's a chore when you have lots of time. It's still difficult to do. I mean, that's honestly why I gave up Spanish this year. I was like, well, it, I just don't feel it. The other yeah. years I felt like I, I went into it and I was like, all right, I am intrinsically motivated yeah. to learn this thing. So even the tough moments are going to be worth it. Whereas I just felt like everything was tough. So I was, just wasn't into it with the language. I'm hoping to come back to it, which makes me think about, so- you wrote this book. Do you still do ultra learning since you wrote this book? Like, and what has happened since the book? Like, have you picked up any? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I've moved away from a little bit is these kind of like large public, you know, somewhat braggadocious kind of projects yeah. where it's sort of like, I'm going to do this. And, you know, it was something that I feel like I've mellowed a little bit as I've gotten older. I'm still, I'm still a kook, but <laughs> when I was in my early twenties, I feel like there's that being a bit of a boastful kind of like, I'm going to do this thing, right? Pausing there for a second, there is a power to putting it out in the universe that you're going to do something because then you kind of have to do it. You do. You do. And it, it was great. But I think where I've shifted more is like, it's, I think it's maybe less visible, but like, for instance, I just submitted the manuscript for my second book and I'll save some details on that because I prefer once all the editing's done to talk about it, just in case things get cut or removed or switched around. But that project was the culmination of like two and a half, maybe three years of research where like, I think I've read about maybe 200 books, about like 600 or so scientific papers. There's, there's like an enormous amount of like, so it definitely qualifies as an ultra learning project for everything I've done, but it doesn't fit into the same rubric of like, I'm calling it this and I'm putting right. it online and I'm doing it that way. So it's definitely something that I feel like is a part of me now of like taking on these kind of projects and just the idea of like, okay, for three months, I'm I'm going to work on this and it's kind of unusual intense is sort of a, a normal for me. But I do think again, yeah, the having kids, having less time, the nature of the projects changes, you know, it's maybe not quite so all consuming. Like they definitely have to be rationed out in, in different parcels of my life, but the enthusiasm's definitely still there. So. Hmm. And one of the things you, you write about in the book is one of the sort of steps or, or planks of ultra learning is directness. Mm -hmm. And what you talk about is, the traditional classroom learning suffers from this problem of knowledge and skill transfer, like basically learning something in the classroom yeah. and then having to apply it in real life or in another context or learning it in one context and applying it elsewhere. And you say we need to be more direct in the way we learn. Talk more about that. Yeah. As an educator, I think this is the real educator's dilemma is that most skills are quite specific. So you learn not to do things in general, but to do specific things. And that makes a real problem for schools because we don't know what those specific things people are going to do are. We know kind of like, well, we're teaching someone physics. It could have thousands of little applications. And so there's different approaches to this. I don't want to say that there's no point in going to school. Like obviously going to school is important for getting that core part that doesn't change. And, and that's still worth learning. And it's also still worth learning in a context that's maybe more favorable for learning. So, you know, it'd be very difficult to like be an elite researcher just by learning on the job. It helps to go to school first. But I think one of the things that I kind of point out is that this is not a problem with learning per se, but just a way the institutions work that whenever, like even you buy my book, I'm talking about learning in general, not learning the exact specific thing that you need to learn. And that forces me to talk at a level of abstraction. It forces me to omit some details that would be important. And so I think one of the principles of directness is if you can kind of narrow in on what it is you're trying to get good at, you can kind of leverage that in a way. So, you know, we're talking about language learning is, is sort of my classic example of that. But 
it's something that, you know, if you want to get good at having conversations, having conversations is one of the best ways you can do that. And there's some things that can augment that, you know, you want to learn the phrases first, you want to learn some flashcards, get some words and understand some grammar patterns. But basically the practice you do to get fluent becomes quite specific that like certain words and phrases get overlearned because you use them a lot. And so being in certain environments, being in certain situations where you can practice that repeatedly, you will get good at those things, even really good so that it's effortless. Whereas you can spend a long time in a classroom and never reach that level where you're quite efficient because the thing you've practiced is not quite what you need. And so you have to transfer it later. And the research on transfer is really interesting because you know, there's often this assumption that it's just like, oh, it's easy and it's not a problem or this kind of thing. And then the research comes back showing like, actually, this is a major difficulty that schools and classrooms have in general. And so the directness principle is definitely when you're designing a project, particularly when you're starting yourself, focusing on what is the exact thing that I'm trying to get good at and making sure that you're practicing that for at least some of the time, I think is very important because it ensures the project doesn't get untethered, that it's just, you're just doing a lot of things, but it's maybe only vaguely related to what you're actually trying to get good at. Yeah, it makes you wonder whether the old days of the apprenticeship were smarter ways of learning. And and there's a lot of data that more professions are using apprenticeship models now than ever before, in part, I think, because of disruption to higher education. Well, you know, if I can just jump in and talk about that, because apprenticeship is fascinating. And I think that's definitely something that I'm in favor of. But I think all existing modes of education have strengths and weaknesses. So the apprenticeship strength is this directness that we talked about, that you're like learning exactly what you need to learn. The weakness of apprenticeships is that people who are experts at a skill often aren't very good at teaching it. And so if there's a lot of mental steps, like sort of not overt actions, but like invisible mental steps of like how they figure out something, that's very difficult to extract and they often become unaware of it. So as you, as you get better and better at something, you do, well, you just do it this way. Cause obviously, right. And so there's a real kind of interesting balance there because obviously school knowledge suffers from that problem of sometimes it's decontextualized, removed from the situation that you're trying to apply it in transfer becomes hard. Apprenticeship has this problem of like, I can't figure out how you're doing this and I'm trying to learn from you. Not to mention the fact that like, you know, in working environments, expen- apprenticeships are kind of difficult to get into. Like, yeah, it'd be great yeah. to like learn underneath the tutelage of the great scientists or the great, you know, people who are working this, but like, that's the difficulty is getting in that, in that room where you can work with them. So I think the idea again with ultra learning is not to just sort of say, well, this is the right way to do it, but to recognize like every single sort of approach you could take has these strengths and weaknesses and how do you balance them? And I think directness is one of those, like I talk about in the next chapter drills, which is kind of the compliment because like directness is helps with some things, but it has its drawbacks and drills ha- helps with other things and it has its drawbacks. And so if you understand how they work, you can kind of, it's like a balanced breakfast. You put them all together and it, it results in better learning than if you I kind of take one and myopically ignore all the others. Yeah, and just to give people a little bit more of a, a path forward here on directness, a couple of examples that you give of how to apply direct learning. One is project-based learning. Two is immersive learning. Mm-hmm. Like, example, you're learning a language, go to that country. Yeah. Flight simulator method, which is if it's unsafe to learn it the <laughs> proper way, you yeah. can find the closest approximation. And then my favorite... The overkill approach. You want to just explain what the overkill approach is? Well, a basic idea of transfer is that transfer tends to be more successful when you go from more difficult to less difficult. So if you learn something to a a degree where the skill you actually need is a subset 
of that larger skill, then you're going to have fewer difficulties. So, I mean, a good example of this would be like, if you're doing math, for instance, and you're able to do the math, like pencil and paper, then you can also do it with a calculator. But if you can do it with a calculator, you can't necessarily do it pencil and paper. Now, sometimes the overkill method goes too far. Like you can go, you can do too much. And then like it would actually, it only would have taken you a 10th as long to learn the smaller subskill you actually needed. But I think the idea here is that if you're not quite sure what you need, if you kind of go deeper, broader, like if you kind of the box of the skill you need to learn, if it's broader, then you're going to have more success with transfer too. Got it. Okay. Drills. You, you alluded to drills. You start this chapter talking about Ben Franklin, who I didn't know this about him, but he basically was deconstructing arguments and sentences and paragraphs from a publication at the time. That's how he kind of taught himself to write and he then started penning articles in his own, was his cousin or his brother's newspaper? I mean, Ben Franklin, he's a fascinating person to read just in general. So like I'm focusing on this tiny little sliver of this one particular studying technique he used. But I mean, he was a great orator, great writer. Like that's the sort of commonality of everything that he was, was a great writer. And I just thought it was really interesting that when he started, he did this kind of like what would to me seem to be an unusual kind of approach, which is like, I'm going to take an existing essay or existing writing that I like and I'm going to like cut up all the sentences and like try to figure out what's the correct order to put them in. And the idea being that this helps you develop this ability of like understanding the sequence, logical sequence of ideas. So the basic idea behind drills is very close to this notion of deliberate practice, which is that when you're doing work, when you're doing some kind of skill you're trying to improve, lasering your attention in on some aspect of it is particularly helpful for trying to get better at it. Now, this is obviously something that we see in athletics where people do drills all the time. You know, you lay up and you know, you're dribbling or you're passing, you're focused on some sliver of what you're trying to do. Now, the idea I think is just that in a lot of complex activities, our brains are actually fairly good at managing this complexity and just, okay, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this, but we don't always do it best. These sort of time constrained, effort constrained resources. And so we just find a way that works most of the time. And so the idea of drills and deliberate practice is to laser in on that. Okay. Like don't just do the way that feels natural. Try to do it a little better. Try to do it in the right way. And with feedback, you can get better at this. And so the drill idea is kind of a complement to directness, because I think, again, the problem with directness is things can be too complicated and you can kind of skim over things and you're speaking a language, but you're not actually pronouncing things right, or you're not using grammar correctly. Correctly. And that needs to be corrected. Otherwise, you're going to just speak poorly forever. Now, you might have better transfer, but you might have plateaus in your skill growth that way. So they kind of complement each other. I think doing directness helps ensure that you avoid this issue of learning the wrong skill and drills ensure that you actually learn the skill that you're trying to get good at. Like you actually can focus in on it and improve. Yeah. My co-host this podcast, a guy named Doug Lamov, who's written a lot about learning. He opens his workshops when he teaches people about, you know, sometimes he teaches sports coaches, sometimes teachers, but he asks, what is practice? And then he uses the example of driving. You know, he'd be like, well, you drive every day to and from a place but are you in any way trying to get better at it? Is anybody saying to you, hey, like, you know, you didn't check your blinders. Did you look back before you did X, Y, and Z? You know, like you're not getting feedback. You're not approaching driving saying, hey, I want to 
actually isolate this particular thing and get better at it. So although you do it every day, it's not practice. You have to add something else to it to make it practice, especially deliberate practice. Well, so the idea of deliberate practice, it's kind of bandied about a lot. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote in his book Outliers about this like kind of 10,000 hour rule. And so it sort of morphed in this popular idea of like, well, deliberate practice is any kind of practice you do deliberately. And that also, you know, the key is quantity. The key is doing a lot. But if you delve into Anders Ericsson, he's the psychologist who came up with this concept, his work is kind of the opposite of that. Like his argument was that like most people are not very good at things that they do repeatedly. Right. <laughs> and that deliberate practice is quite rare. This is something that most people aren't doing. And that he identified it with some subset of elite performers that, you know, in, in music and athletics that like they're doing something differently than just, you know, the football players not just playing games or the chess players not just playing in tournaments. They're doing something different. And the idea here, one of his formulations of this is related to psychologist Fitz and Posner had this three-stage model for how you learn skills, particularly motor skills, but it applies more broadly than this, was that there was a cognitive phase where you kind of figuring out how the skill works. So you have like a very explicit representation of, you know, you're skiing down the mountain and you're like, okay, pizza and French fries. And like, you're, you're doing it in this way of like, this is how I do it. And then there's an associative phase where you're kind of weeding out the errors in your performance. So you're like, okay, this way I have to do it. I have to lean this much. I have to do it that much. And then there was an autonomous phase, which is where it ceases to become effortful. You cease to like pay attention to it while you're doing it. It just happens sort of in the background. And, you know, Anders Ericsson, his kind of point was that, well, this autonomous phase is in some ways kind of an enemy of true world-class performance, because if you have a suboptimal way of doing it and it's autonomous, you can't really correct it very easily because you can't notice it. You don't notice that you're not doing it properly. So with language learning, for instance, this is called often called fossilization, where you speak in a sort of not a great accent. It works, but not a great accent. And because you never notice that like, oh, you're not really saying this word correctly, you're not able to actually update it and adjust it. And so his idea of deliberate practice is you need to sort of regress it almost, like bring it back into conscious awareness, kind of bring some aspect of the skill back to this cognitive phase. So you can be like, you know, it's not perro, it's perro, like, you know, like, and get that little detail right. I think you make this point, but it's, it's like the anti-flow argument, right, that Erickson makes. And his book is called Peak for people who are, yeah. um, who are familiar with his work is a really, really good book on learning. Mm -hmm. And Csikszentmihalyi, who is, I think, what Gladwell writes about in terms of flow, yeah. like this concept of flow, and I'm, I might be saying his name wrong, I never get it right. Yeah, yeah, Csikszentmihalyi, yeah. But, but, you know, this idea that you kind of want to be effortless, et cetera, like, it is, it is counterintuitive to think, well, you could be in the wrong flow. Yeah. <laughs> we all have people in our lives who are in the wrong flow all the time. I was just thinking about this podcast, like, you know, I do podcasting like I do driving now. I do so many podcasts that at the end of this podcast, unless I stop and take notes and be like, you know what? Like I had two questions in a row where I was just like explaining this concept in the book. And I'm like, maybe I could have mixed that up and actually pushed you more or so, you know, it's like, I, it's like driving to me at this point. Well, it's funny you talk about that. Like, you know, the practice makes perfect is the kind of mantra. Well, then there's this sort of like counter mantra that practices and make perfect practice makes permanent, right? which is, I think a little bit overly negative framing, but it kind of hits that idea that when you practice something, you're making it more automatic, easier to do. And in some cases, harder to undo if it's a bad habit, but I prefer the expression practice makes fluent. 
So practice is lowering the effort to do something. So it doesn't make it necessarily permanent. There's actually lots of cases where you can do something differently even after you've practiced something quite a bit. It can be difficult for certain like motor skills and stuff to do that. But I mean, for certain thinking skills, there's definitely, you can learn to do it one way and then you can learn to do it another way. But I think the idea here is that the fluency kind of lowers the effort cost for doing certain things. And that has an obvious advantage. So flow is great in a lot of ways. And in many ways, if we weren't fluent in a lot of skills, we'd be unable to function. You know, if you're not fluent in basic math, you can't learn algebra or calculus. Like it's just not possible to like deal with the complexity inherent in like moving these things around. If you don't know that like two times three equals six, like if you don't know that it's very difficult to do it. So fluency is important. But as you said, it's, it can make a difficulty there because if there are sort of suboptimal points in your performance that are totally fluent, you don't even notice them. So it's very difficult to adjust it. And, you know, this is a sort of a dilemma of, of, of learning is that, you know, you need to get fluent in things. So you need to get started practicing, but you know, you want to balance that with also weeding out some of your mistakes. Some of those are unavoidable. Like there's lots of cases where, you know, language learning is a second language acquisition is very noted that there's like particular stages that people go through with speaking. And it's very difficult to like skip past a stage just through deliberate instruction. And so in some cases you kind of have to like learn it in not the best way. And then you're constantly unlearning and changing your own performance. And that's just part of the learning process of adding new skills and fixing old skills. And so drills, I think are, are an important component of that that you can't really omit. Yeah, and, and when you talk about doing s drills effectively, you talk about the rate limiting step or the rate determining step using a chemistry term. Yeah. And so essentially this is like if there's a chain reaction, there's usually one part of the chain reaction that takes longer than the rest. And learning could be like that where there's usually one or a few pieces of the learning experience that take longer to the rest. And, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but you think that drills, that's a good area to drill. Is it in a rate determining step? Well, yeah, the idea may be being that let's say you have an overall performance for some skill you're trying to perform and there's a particular point that's weak. So this is this is kind of going against a lot of people's intuitions because we always hear like we should focus on our strengths, right? And I'm here to say like, no, you should focus on your weaknesses. And they're not a contradiction because they're different problems. So when people say focus on your strengths, they kind of mean essentially specialized. They essentially mean like avoid the things you're weak at and do the things that you're good at. But when you can't avoid the things because they're an integral part of the whole performance, then you should definitely focus on the things you're weakest on. So, you know, this is an example, I'm forgetting the name of what it's called, but like people are really into like getting better at golf. So I was talking to a guy who was like trying to do a golf ultra learning project. And like, he was talking about how there's this whole system now where you can figure out basically where you're losing strokes. Like what kinds of shots do you make in a way that it kind of adds to your score more than anything else? And like, that's what you need to drill. So it's like the 90 yard, you know, chip on or whatever. That's what you need to like drill. If it's your putting, if it's your drives, if it's your whatever, because there's lots of aspects of the game. And if you just do them all evenly, you're not going to get enough time. You're not going to get enough deliberate attention to focus on fixing those sort of weak areas. And I think you can think about that with anything, any skill that you're doing. You know, if you're speaking a language, is the bottleneck pronunciation or is it vocabulary or is it grammar? And sometimes when you fix one weak point, then another thing becomes the weak point because you've gotten better at one thing and then it's going to shift. So it's not necessarily going to even be a constant for you. It's, it's going to change as you practice. But this idea being that, you know, if a skill decomposes into like, you know, a dozen different aspects that all have to be done well in order to succeed, focusing on the weakest one is usually the, the best way to go forward. Well, there are quite a few more elements of ultra learning here, but we won't talk about all of them. I'll encourage people to read about it, but I want to take us back as we round out this conversation 
to the beginning of your book where you talk about just why. Why do you want to learn you know, new skills like this anyway? And you talk about Tyler Cowen's point about skill polarization, which I think has become even more of a pronounced issue since you wrote this book now with the sort of threats of AI and you know, technology flattening out, you know, where like there's somebody in Bangladesh or in London or in Poland who, you know, might be competing with you now for the very same jobs that you were taking for granted here. You seem to to argue that, well, there's an intrinsic love of learning. And you just, there's certain things you just want to do because you want to do it and you love it. Like that's how I treat surfing. Nobody will ever pay me to surf. But there are other things where, hey, like even if it's late in life, you may want to undertake an ultra learning project to just level yourself up to be more competitive in the workplace. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the the research you're talking about is skill polarization is MIT economist David Author. He had this research that was showing that there was a period of like kind of growing inequality, but it was actually not just a broadening. It was like at the top of the sort of income range, it was broadening. And at the lower part, it was compressing, which kind of roughly fits this picture of like the middle is what's getting separated. So there's like some people who are earning a lot more than some people who like their income is regressing. And the idea here, which, and again, like the economic data is always changing. So we were talking about like uh, Duolingo, like definitely citing economic data is always fraught because, you know, 10, 20 years later than the trend reverses or it switches. Right. But the basic idea, which I still believe holds is that we're entering a world which increasingly depends on difficult cognitive work. You know, that the best programmers are doing work that would have been, you know, difficult to imagine 10, 20 years ago, but also a lot of the sort of easy, more trivial work is getting automated. It's getting done by, again, people overseas is getting done in other places where they can pay people less money. And so there's a sort of onus on us to be learners, to be people who are constantly adding to our skills re-upping our skills. It's no longer possible to just be like, okay, I'm going to show up with a job, get a couple years of training, and then just do the same thing for 35 years until I'm retired. You always have to be doing this. And so this kind of creates, in, in my mind, an imperative to be an ultra learner, to be someone who is curious and interested in the learning process, that has some experience taking on self-directed learning projects, because, you know, while it's great to get direct instruction and to be taught exactly what you need to be taught, as we mentioned with the whole directness principle, there's just so much information out there. So much of knowledge is quite specific that being able to navigate that and being able to take the initiative to be like, hey, what is missing? How does this skill work? How do I break it down? How do I set up my own path to learning it is very valuable. And so that I think is going to provide the kind of utilitarian incentive. But I think the right way to get people into it is to focus on something that they're really genuinely interested in. Because I think once you've done it a couple times, you have a little bit of sense of some of the common patterns of like how not only, you know, not only you break down the content, but even just self-regulation, like here's how I work. Like I work best Saturday mornings right. and I, you know, I'm good studying for 50 minutes, but more than that, and I get burnt out or, you know, a one month project is good more than that. And I lose interest. And so you figure out the right way to sequence and chunk these things. And then you can be more effective at taking on projects that maybe aren't just for fun, but for things that you need to do. Yeah. And I think it becomes addictive. I, at least this is my experience. Like once you get the feeling again, cause some people haven't felt this in a long time from going from beginner to intermediate, which is my favorite feeling like intermediate to expert is a longer path. I find. Yeah. That's a grind, but yeah. Yeah. But beginner to intermediate is my favorite feeling because almost every day or every week brings some exciting jump in your learning. Mm -hmm. You know, now there are certain things that I do where it could take me a year to really meaningfully change something in areas that I am truly an expert in. 
But, you know, when I was learning surfing my first year, you know, there would be weeks where I'd go out there and I would do something fundamentally different almost every week on my path to learning. And that's a fun feeling. That's a great feeling. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's definitely areas where you want to be a specialist. There's definitely areas where you want to be, you know, I spent 20 years getting really good at X and certainly the economics of it tends to reward specialization more than people who are jack of all trades. But I think there's a lot of places where having auxiliary skills. So, you know, I am an X, but I know enough of this to get by can actually be really valuable. So, you know, if you are the engineer at your company, who's a good engineer, but you're also like, you know, not a great, but decent public speaker, then you're the one who goes to conferences. You're the right. one who gives the talks. If you are, you know, a doctor who is decently good at using certain passive information technology, then maybe you're able to assemble your patient data or see trends that you're not able to see just on your own. And so I think this kind of adding to the sort of auxiliary skills is definitely a place where these kind of short-term projects can, can work out. Because obviously, I mean, if you're going to spend your entire life doing something, you're probably going to go to school. You're probably going to follow the tens of thousands of dollars in debt and formal education process. But maybe you're not going to be when you're in the middle of your career being like, you know, I'd really like to learn how programming works, but I don't want to go back to school. Well, this is where you are. This is where this kind of approach I think is particularly valuable. Or even just adding something, you know, you're already an engineer, you want to learn a new branch of engineering. This is all things that I think are very much in this zone where the formal education system is too onerous, but the, you know, default, I just want to learn about it is overwhelming. And so finding that sweet spot, I think is often very valuable. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you want to just talk about, I know we can't talk about your new book, but where can people find your work? Yeah. So they can go to my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. There's links to everything there, uh, YouTube, social media, our newsletter, we're giving away some free books if, if people are looking at that, some free ebooks. And then, of course, there's my book, Ultra Learning. So if you go on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Audible, wherever you get your books, then, uh, you know, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you listened to this whole thing, maybe you will enjoy listening to the book as well. Thank you so much.